You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Jonathan Robinson Lees. Andy Nielsen is a musician, a drummer for the Lazies, a band that has exploded in the Canadian rock and roll scene. Growing up in Wimberley in the Blue Mountains, Andy was first introduced to drumming at the age of eight by a family friend. He continued to hone his skill throughout his high school years. Embarking on his first tour at the age of 18, then on numerous overseas adventures, Andy has embraced the lifestyle but also has a strong understanding of what he has given up to get there. Andy joins us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Andy, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Cheers, thanks for having me. Andy, reflecting on your career to date, uh, you said to me that you've been very, very fortunate to have the experiences you've had but you've picked one of the hardest and least secure professions in the world to pursue. Looking back on what has been an amazing journey for you so far, do you think, is there much you would have changed over that time? <sighs> Good question. No, I don't think so. I don't think I would have changed anything. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty fortunate to have had the experiences that I've had with music. Um, yeah, pretty much like, you know, going on my first tour when I was 18 or whatever around the country and, and sort of progressing from there was, was pretty good. So yeah, like, even though I don't have the financial, <laughs> like, you know, uh, the dollars in the bank to back it up. Um, yeah, I, de- I don't think I would change anything, man. Like I am pretty grateful for the experiences that I've had and all the opportunities I've had and people I've met along the way and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't think I would change anything. Obviously there are some things like maybe I could have done differently, like looking back, um, like when, when I first moved to Germany, man, I, I probably didn't take that as seriously as I should have, as at least as a musician, because, you know, I was 19, I was all cashed up and I was in Berlin and instead of like working on the band or practicing drumming or stuff like that, you know, beers were 55 cents a bottle. So I was just going out, just drinking and partying, man. Uh, as fun as that was, and as much as, again, I don't regret that, part of me thinks, like, I could have done that differently, and, you know, who knows what would have happened, but, yeah, I don't regret anything. And you, we touched on, kind of, I guess, the security, or perhaps lack thereof, is that something that does energise you, though? Like, there's a, a sense of not knowing what's coming up? Yeah, for sure. We, I think a lot of musos do, like, that's why we do what we do, is because anything could happen, you know, you could play, like, the lazies. Uh, when they're in Canada, that's how this whole thing started was they played a gig and it just so happened that the right people were in the room at the time. And, um, yeah, they were able to go back and sort of, uh, create a career in, in Canada. So yeah, that, that sort of, yeah, not knowing what's coming is kind of what keeps you going and you keep chasing it because I mean, you also enjoy it as well, obviously. Um, but yeah, the security thing, can be a bit daunting at times, especially now at my age, man, when I'm like seeing people buying houses and buying cars and, uh, that sort of thing. There is definitely part of me that's like, oh man, it'd be nice to have that, you know, to have that sort of security at the same time. I love what I do and, uh, and yeah, passionate about it and had some great experiences and, and yeah, like right now we're at a good place where anything could happen. The next album, anything could happen with that, uh, so it's worth sort of just sticking with it and, and seeing what happens. Jumping back to your upbringing, you started yeah. school on the Central Coast of New South Wales yeah. before you moved to Wimberley in the Blue Mountains at the age of five. Mm-hmm. What was your childhood like growing up? Oh, man, it was good. It was great. Yeah, I had really good par- have really good parents, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, they were great, man. Yeah, really, really cool. Um, growing up in the mountains, I think it was great because just, I don't know, you know, I have like these fond memories of 
being out on the street with the neighbours and all those kids and, you know, like kicking a soccer ball around or riding bikes and um, being very active and, and knowing a lot of kids, you know, in the area and just having a good time and, and being able to like come home from school and go straight outside and start kicking a ball around with people and not have to worry about traffic or about, you know, like someone kidnapping me or whatever, you know, <laughs> it was like the mountains is very secure uh, and it was a great place to grow up and it's very comfortable and um, there is something, especially after like leaving and coming back that uh, makes me appreciate the mountains a lot. So yeah, my upbringing was cool. I'm glad it, it was in the mountains. Uh, yeah, I was very fortunate. Yeah. And you, you touched on before the show that for you, family and your friends are a huge part of your life. What kind of influence did your family have on your upbringing? Did your parents try and instill a real sense of freedom and exploration and, I guess, willingness to go and see see what was out there? Yeah, sort of. My, both my parents have always been super supportive um, and my extended family as well, man. Everyone's always been really, really supportive of the decisions that I've made and, like, all the kids in the families, you know, that we've all made. And um, they, like, yeah, I... I I definitely got a good work ethic from my parents, but also, yeah, was encouraged to, to go and explore and, and, uh, make my own choices and learn from my own mistakes and stuff like that. So like when I was, um, 18 and had that opportunity to move to Berlin, they, they were super cool about it. I I had no idea what to do, like fresh out of school, no idea what life was. (laughs) And, uh, and yeah, both my parents like, you should absolutely do this. Like, they could have easily said, you're better off, you know, getting a trade or getting an apprenticeship or whatever. But they saw this opportunity and, um, and I guess what it could mean to me in the future. And yeah, they were, both of them were just like, go and do it for sure. So yeah, they've always been very encouraging in that sense. Do you think that is a crucial part for any child growing up is not to be forced into too many things, but to have the opportunity just to see what's out there, to find their own passion rather rather than being pushed in a certain direction? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you force anyone into anything, it's it's usually going to end badly, whether they, whether they rebel against it, you know, and do the exact opposite of what you want, or, uh, or if, I don't know, if they just uh, develop some other issues, you know, as a result of the pressure as a kid, you know, like, I don't know, an example that comes to mind is like Michael Jackson. Like, you know, he was forced into that lifestyle as a little kid and didn't know anything differently. And obviously it kind of did a number on him, you know, (laughs) like uh, he had some issues as an adult. So yeah, I don't think anyone should be forced into anything like definitely suggest. And, you know, like my dad got me into soccer and playing soccer was great, but eventually I got over that and decided to focus on music are very encouraging of that. And, um, and as you know, having that freedom of choice, um, I, yeah, just pursued music because I wanted to, and they were encouraging me to. And whereas if I felt forced, I probably would have just gone like stuff this and I want to do it, you know? In your introduction to music, you first took drumming lessons at the age of eight. Yeah. What was it about drumming that specifically drew you in? Oh, geez. I don't know. I don't know really. I got, I started that because my dad worked with a guy who used to just like, he worked in a warehouse and so he'd walk around the warehouse like tapping on things and dad was like, why the hell are you tapping on everything, you know? And, uh, and he, he was like, oh, I'm a drummer and, you know, I do lessons and stuff. And I guess dad thought that that was something that I might be interested in. I was only seven or eight at the time. Yeah. So um, yeah, he was just like, Hey, do you want some drum lessons? Like come along and meet this guy and do a lesson. I was like, yeah, all right. And yeah, I didn't stop for 21 years. So, <laughs> <I haven't> um, <laughs> yeah. So I think what it was, I don't know. I don't know if it was just all the shiny toys to play with or like the loud noises or like it would have been something so basic, but I don't play piano or guitar or anything like that. So there's something, yeah, something about drums that, I really was drawn to and I can't for the life of me think of what it could have been specifically but whatever it was hasn't died for a long time <laughs> so do you think it's part of I guess like this this high energy with being a drum player there's a lot of physical exertion that comes with it yeah. um, what, like what did that feel like when you when you first kind of recognized like hang on this has got something to it that that really I guess you're attracted to yeah um 
Yeah, what it feels great every you know even now when I go out and play drums, even if I'm playing the same song that I've played you know for the last six years or whatever, uh, it's still great, man. It's still fun. I do love the the physicality of it for sure. Um, uh, I yeah, I I don't know. It's something about the the rhythms and I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> it's a weird question. I've never thought of it. You know. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, when I, it first probably really took off for me when I started playing with other musicians, I think, because that suddenly, you know, I was out of my bedroom, not just playing along to a Walkman or whatever, like I was out, like, and you, you know, when you're playing with other guys, you, uh, sort of bouncing off each other and there's like a certain chemistry in the room and, um, everyone has to listen to each other and, you know, lock in and to make it sound good. And so I think it starting to play with other musicians brought on all these other like new challenges and, uh, things that I, I hadn't experienced like just in my bedroom. So that was probably like when I first started playing well with other musicians was kind of like, all right, this is, this is pretty cool. You know, I could see myself doing this for a long time. (laughs) That leads, I guess, into the next question. Like, did you did you want to be a rock star? Was there a drive? You know, you hear young cricketers saying they want to wear the baggy green. Yeah. You know, young actors want to win an Academy Award. Did you have this vision of being a rock star? For sure. I think mean, everyone does, man, totally. I used to have dreams of it, like playing uh, the Sydney Entertainment Centre and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, man, like especially because all my influences are all like the 70s and 80s guys when rock and roll was like at its peak. So yeah, you see the lifestyle, you see like, you know, um, stories of Keith Moon driving a Rolls Royce into a hotel swimming pool. Like that stuff for me is the coolest thing. (laughs) Like I would love to do something like that. Uh, and yeah, as a kid, that whole thing appealed to me, man. Like, like all you had to do was get up, play rock and roll and party every day. Like who wouldn't want to do that and get paid millions for it. So yeah, absolutely. But it's funny how as you grow and as you uh, as you play in bands, your expectations kind of like level out, I suppose. So, you know, back as a kid when I first started, I was like, yeah, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a millionaire and stuff. And now I'm just like, man, if I can pay rent from gigs, like I've made it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. so, well. And do you think now as well, looking back, you've got more of an appreciation for, I guess, the work that goes in to even maintain that level that you're at now? A lot of work goes into that, a lot of time and sacrifice. For sure. Which obviously as a youngster, you don't necessarily know about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, when you're younger, you're sort of, you're still learning and, and uh, yeah, playing with other musicians and stuff like that. It's all new experiences and you're kind of learning as you go. And now that, yeah, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of those experiences under my belt yeah, it's, it's kind of made me realize how important practicing is because I've noticed that even just living in Toronto, man, like I didn't have a drum kit or anything set up that I could practice on. So I'd noticed that if there was like a six month gap between tours, that first rehearsal before we'd go out on tour again was like so rusty. It felt like I was playing the drums for the first time, you know? So yeah, the, the, the practicing and the learning, um, never, stops I mean, same with athletes and stuff as well you know you always need to train and, and maintain that fitness and it's exactly the same yeah you first formed a band at the age of 13 yeah. um you know there's some people from school involved in that yeah. what role did school play for you from a music perspective like how were you able to go about balancing the theory expectations of music classes mm. but then also i guess the enjoyment that comes with the practical side yeah um yeah, that's a good question. I, I never, I'm still really bad at theory, music theory. And, uh, it was interesting, I guess that anything to do with music and, and being able to sort of partially understand this like different language, I guess, was interesting to me. And, um, I, I, I wanted to get to know more about that, but at the end of the day, I also just wanted to be behind the drums and on stage and playing with people. So I kind of, had to recognize the importance of that theory and, um, and it has helped, it has benefited me in a few ways, uh, like now sort of doing it more professionally. So I'm glad I did pay 
some attention in those classes. Um, but yeah, at, at the end of the day, I think yeah, playing on stage and playing with other guys is what really kept me involved. I, yeah, I don't think the classrooms would have kept me in it if I wasn't also playing drums, you know. And was there a musical influence going on around you? You know, did your parents have certain um, albums that you guys listened to as kids growing up? Not really. I, yeah, I've thought about this before. None, neither of my parents play any musical instrument. My grandparents, like my nan was a big, is a big music lover. She used to, <laughs> she has a wicked sense of humor. She like, she's a big Elvis Presley fan. And I remember as a kid, she used to make me Elvis Presley mixtapes on cassette. And she, she used to say to me like, she go, Andrew, if Elvis Presley ever comes to Sydney, I promise we'll go and see him. <laughs> and I was always like, oh, thanks Nan. And obviously that's never going to happen. So, um, that, yeah, that was funny. So I was introduced to music at an early age, um, especially yeah, rock and roll, like Elvis and Little Richard and that sort of stuff through my nan. Um, it wasn't until I really started like playing music and doing my own sort of research, I suppose, that, yeah, my parents were like, oh, you know, dad loves the Beatles. And mum, I remember finding a meatloaf album in mum's CD collection. I was like, what the hell's this? Like, <laughs> I listened to it, I was like, this is awesome. And so since then, you know, they've... Um, they've introduced me to other music as well from their uh, generation. And a lot of like my mom and my dad actually were like pretty well into Aussie rock. My dad saw Cold Chisel in Adelaide, like in the seventies when they were just coming up and had no idea who they were at the time, you know? And then my mom used to go to Rose Tattoo and uh, the angels gigs and stuff like that. So they've kind of, they introduced me to a lot of that stuff and, uh, and yeah, from there, it just kind of, I just started with the internet, man, just started doing my own research. Like when I was getting into ACDC, I started researching like who influenced ACDC, you know, and that's kind of how I uh, developed like my own music taste, I guess. Was there a particular drummer you looked up to from around the world? Oh, uh, yeah, there's been a couple, I guess. The first guy that really came to mind was... Uh, this guy called Mike Portnoy, who's an American dude from a band called Dream Theater. And my drum teacher showed me this band and they're a progressive rock band. So before that I'd never heard like really technical music before. Um, and he introduced me to this band and I was just like, what the heck is this? You know, like, it, yeah, it just, it really got me from the moment I listened to it. So he was kind of my first like big influence because I just wanted to be exactly like him and I thought he was the best drummer in the world. Um, and then again, through researching like who influenced him, I got to know other guys like there's a Canadian dude called Neil Pert who played in a band called Rush who was uh, really good and then like going way back to the jazz era is like a guy called Buddy Rich who is still to this day like considered the absolute godfather of drumming you know like he's just you still watch videos of him from 50 years ago and go like, what the hell is he doing you know like he's unlike anyone i've ever seen before so guys like that and then i'm such a huge acdc fan that phil rudd uh has been a big influence as well uh not so much personally he's <laughs> he's just like been in and out of jail and stuff so uh, i'm trying to steer clear of that but yeah as far as drumming goes man yeah that dude is like I don't know, it's the king, the king of rock and roll drumming. Have you always had a, a strong respect for the past? Um, I guess musos who have come before you as well? Yeah, for sure. I the Music, even today, I really only listen to old music. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's... Like I was saying, I was always interested in... You know, if I liked a band or liked a certain musician or something, I always found myself interested in finding out who influenced them and, you know, where their influences came from and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I always had a really strong respect for, for musicians in the past because I think they've just paved the way for what we have today. You know? This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender, 
Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. started touring what did that look like um what did that involve where did you go for that kind of first tour you went on first tour i it was i still remember it like i finished work at the remember the cd shop at wimbledon yes i used to work there so (laughs) i remember finishing a shift there once and uh waiting for the bus and a guy i used to go to high school with rang me and was like hey man do you want to go on tour i was like course obviously been waiting for that call right yeah exactly yeah so uh he was like dude i've got this band that i've just joined they need a drummer i said that you'd be good do you want to come and audition i was like yeah okay went and audition got the gig and they did a um like an australia tour so we were like did a few new south wales like regional shows went up to brizzy we did like some melbourne stuff uh we did some stuff in adelaide and then we flew over to perth for a festival and did some stuff there so that was my first taste of touring and um, halfway through that tour, that same band were like, all right, the, the two guys that started it were a bit older than us. So they were like, you know, we've had this band and we kind of wanted to relocate it overseas. Would you guys be interested in moving with us? And I, was, I was like, oh God, I don't really know, you know, like I just finished high school and, uh, and they were like, yeah, we want to move to Berlin. So I was like, oh geez, all right. And traveling at that point had never really been like, a uh, like a real focus of mine. You know, some people finish high school and are like, oh, I can't wait for my gap year to go to Europe and stuff like that. I never really thought of it. So I was, yeah, I was like, oh, Germany. What, I wonder what that's like. And yeah, like I said before, both my parents were like, do it, for sure, do it. So yeah, I did it. And uh, so that's, yeah, I, I moved to Berlin and, and did it twice. I sort of got there, was a bit homesick, I think, and maybe... And like I said before as well, didn't really treat it properly. <laughs> Came back for a little bit and then went back over. So I think all up, it was about eight months or something that I did in Berlin. Um, but yeah, in that time, toured all over Europe, like Germany and France and Poland and Austria and Italy and Switzerland. Yeah, went to a lot of cool places. And um, yeah, that kind of, that definitely sparked like the fire, I suppose, in me to, to tour and, and travel playing music. Do you think both that first national tour and then the first time in Europe that you were able to properly embrace the whole experience or did you find like you're a bit of a deer in the headlights being like there's so much happening and then you kind of look back and think, geez, that went really quick. Or were we able to immerse yourself into it? Yeah, a little bit of both, I guess, yeah. Um, at the time, like I was saying before, man, I was just so stoked to be overseas with a heap of cash that I'd saved up like it was all just sort of one big party for me um so going to those different cities and countries and I think I did appreciate it at the time but yeah it wasn't until maybe when I got back or a year or so after that um yeah I kind of looked back on the whole experience and was like oh man we actually did some pretty cool things where at the time I was just like, Oh, you know, this is just another gig or, um, yeah, even, you know, cause some of the gigs you'd play, you'd play to 10 or 15 people if you're lucky. Uh, so those sort of gigs at the time are pretty depressing. It's like, Oh, what am I doing here? But then, yeah, looking back on it, it's like, man, I was pretty fortunate to be over there and have that experience at all. You know, like quick side note with those kind of gigs where, you know, you- you weren't getting a huge turnout. How, how do you get energized for that? And do you feel a responsibility as the drummer to bring that energy? Yeah, I think everyone in the band in those situations kind of steps up. And um, if you have any sort of love and respect for what you do, you you just give it 100% uh, every time. So the, the passion for drumming and playing in bands uh, is definitely what keeps you energized and motivated in those situations. Once you get on stage, yeah, something happens to your energy levels where you don't care if there's 10 or 1,000 people in the room. Like, you just give it everything. So, yeah, we're, like, as long as everyone as well is on that same wave, uh, then, it, yeah, it's usually pretty fine. And like you said, there's been a couple of times, I guess, where you've, you've moved overseas for, for a tour. 
How did you initially adjust to like a quite transient life? Was it quite surreal? Did you feel a bit out of place initially? A little bit. It's definitely in Germany, man, for sure, because I'd never been in like a non-English speaking country before. So getting there and hearing everyone speak German and having to try and learn, you know, really basic German just to get by, just to like order a beer and stuff like that. That was definitely uh, um, a bit confronting, I suppose. Uh, And then going to all the different countries and, you know, like you just get comfortable in Germany trying to speak German and then you're in Poland that has a completely different language and culture and you have to try and adjust to that. And then you go to France that's completely different again. Uh, So, yeah, that that was sort of very confronting moments. Um, But, yeah, I, I guess you get used to it and... Um, yeah, the more you do it, the more you just get used to moving around a lot and, uh, adapting, I guess, to different scenarios and different people and stuff like that. Yeah. And looking back to you, have an appreciation that being pushed out of your comfort zone then has probably helped shape who you are today as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Again, one of those things that I didn't really, uh, appreciate or recognize at the time of doing it, but now looking back, yeah, I can see even just in, you know, job interviews or, um, you know, being the new employee at a, at a job or, or whatever. Um, yeah, having having had to adapt to so many different sort of social settings in, on, in bands and on tour and stuff like that, yeah, has definitely sort of helped with my confidence, helped with, like, communication and stuff like that and... Uh, and helped with independence for sure, you know, like, um, yeah, I, I'm pretty confident that I could adjust to any situation, you know, I was thrown into now, hopefully. <laughs> Andy, you joined the Lazies um, as the drummer. When did that occur and, and how did that occur as well? I think that was in, what are we, 2020 now? So I think that was in 2015 at the end of that year is when I first joined. Um, it all happened because, so I was in a band with Eddie, Eddie Boyd and the Fatterpillars, and we were doing our thing and, and going around Australia a bit and I was really enjoying that. And, uh, then a mutual friend of like ours and the Lazies, um, just messaged me on Facebook one day saying the Lazies need a drummer. And I was like, yeah, I wasn't really that interested cause I was kind of into the Eddie Boyd thing at the time. And, um, and she was like, oh, they've you know, got a Canadian tour lined up in November. And I was like, oh. Honestly, the only thing that made me go was like, oh, I've never been to Canada. <laughs> I was like, that could be cool. Um, so I, yeah, I was just like, oh, what have I got to lose? Like, so I went and did the audition. I had to learn how many songs? I think I had to learn four songs in three days or something before the audition, which was fine. Went and did the audition and then um, they were like, oh, can you come back in two days or something? And that night, I think it was, they sent me another 10 songs to learn. So I had to learn these 10 songs in like 36 hours, <laughs> which was a bit stressful. But uh, got through it and then, yeah, did the audition and they just called me up one day and we're just like, mate, get ready because your life's about to change or something like that. And I was like, oh shit, okay. So yeah, I just did a couple of auditions, um, got along well with the guys and yeah, within two or three weeks, I think we had our first proper gig in Byron. Um, and then, yeah, did a couple of like Australian shows like Melbourne and Frankie's in Sydney and stuff like that. And then, yeah, about a week later or something, went to, uh, to Canada for the first time. And how long have the Lazies been running as a band prior to you joining? I think they've been together for, I think at that time it was about 10 years they were together um, Maddie and Leon started the band. They're from the Central Coast, so they started the band together. And then uh, they've been through a couple of different like rhythm guitarists and drummers. And oh, they had the same bass player, yeah, until recently. Um, so yeah, the three of them actually all started in the Central Coast and did the hard yards. And uh, yeah, and I was lucky enough to sort of jump on board, like when things were really taken off for them in Canada. So. Did you early on feel pressure 
as a drummer, but also like a socially trying to make yourself fit in with this band, or was it a pretty easy fit from the get go? It, it was it was kind of easy, but I definitely that was another thing from playing in bands and touring and stuff like that that I recognised that uh, your ability is kind of only half of of what is required of you. You know, like the other, you really have to get along with people, and you need to know how to adapt to different personalities and stuff like that, which can be hard at times, but you know, you're going to be touring together. So you're going to be in the, in a cramped van together and you're going to be spending every hour of every day together. So it's really important that you can all get along and be social together because if you can't like, you'll just kill each other. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, going into it, I definitely recognized that I had to be, uh, oh, not that I'm not, I don't think I'm unfriendly anyway, but you know what I mean? Like it was definitely a conscious thing to be like, I, you know, I have to fit in with these guys to, to have a shot. And how did the conversation go with, with Eddie? Was it, a, was it a, I guess, a breakup conversation to say, I'm taking on this new gig or was it, was it a mutual understanding between you guys? Uh, no, it wasn't really mutual. It was, uh, I, I wanted to stay in the band. Um, but I guess Eddie wanted to be more, it was his band. Yeah. He wrote all the songs and stuff. So it was his project. Um, but I guess Eddie wanted like a more stable lineup. He wanted people to focus solely on that, which is totally cool. So, um, yeah, uh, he, he was cool. Like he was really cool when I uh, got the gig and, you know, congratulated me and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, eventually it was kind of like, he just kind of sort of said, you know, like I want someone more stable and more, um, full time. Uh, so thanks. <laughs> and it was kind of tough at the time, but we're cool now. And, uh, and I think, I think it worked out probably for the best for both of us. Yeah. The, the Lazies, they've got a really strong and, and passionate following in Canada and probably not as big here in Australia compared to Canada. Has that been quite weird adjusting to that? We, you, you set foot in Toronto, for example, and yeah. you guys are right up there on the charts, whereas back home, you're not necessarily as big. Yeah. It is weird, and we get asked that a lot in Canada. I think people come to our shows and see the crowds, and they go, oh, so you guys this big or even bigger in Australia? It's going, man, we haven't played in Australia for like three years. And so it is kind of weird, but um, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to be in Canada and and tour there so much and, and have a career over there. It's a shame because we would like to have the same support in Australia, and obviously we'd love to do home shows and stuff like that, but it just, the, the music industry here, or is there something about the culture? I'm not really sure, but it's just not as respected. Like live music in general, man, especially in Sydney, is just not as appreciated, I suppose, as it is in Canada. People in Canada still, you know, you, you try and put a show on in Sydney the minute you tell anyone like, oh, tickets are 10 bucks, they're going to go, oh, 10 bucks, really? Ugh, man, you know, like, sorry, but they'll happily go somewhere else and buy like cocaine for $300. Yeah, <laughs> and a $10 entry fee is like, is off the charts for them. So, um, it's, it's just, I, I don't know what it is, but can, yeah, in, something in Canada, um, people just love it more and there's a lot more radio support as well over there for rock and roll. Whereas over here, it's really only triple M for the whole country, but they're so comfortable playing the seventies and eighties stuff that as a new rock band, you really don't get a look in. So you're right. We've, we've almost lost that vehicle for the up and coming rock and roll band. Yeah. Um, I think there's probably channels and opportunities for, for different genres, but pure you know, rock and roll. You know, we spoke about tuning into to Powderfinger for their online concert, yeah. but, even they had a channel they could make their way through back in the 90s, but maybe we've lost that in Australia, do you feel? Yeah, definitely. There's The music scene as well was a lot different, I guess, yeah, in the 80s and 90s. Um, it was a lot easier for venues. There were a lot more venues, and it was a lot easier for venues to host live music. And there was more of a um, sort of demand, I guess, for live bands, and it was still something interesting to go and see. I, I, I think now... And one of the biggest killers for venues was uh, poker machines. Like, it costs the venues and the public and so much to put live music on. There's such a big security risk as well. You know, there's all these extra costs that they have to factor in just to have a band night. 
Whereas, you know, they can just fill a room with 40 or 50 pokies and just not have to worry about them and just watch the money roll in. So I get it from a business point that most people would do that. Um, it's just a shame that there hasn't been much support from the government and, uh, and even like from local communities, man, the amount of venues that have had their, their hours restricted or their, um, decibel levels restricted just because one neighbor that moved in, you know, a week ago calls up and says, I don't like this. Like, you know, then the cops go in and say, shut it down. And, uh, and that's it. And so, you know, we lose another venue and, um, yeah, I, it, it is a real shame because Australia used to have a, such a strong um, music scene, especially for rock and roll and stuff. And now, yeah, just with the times, man, it's all about DJs and, and rappers and stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of hard. Looking at the, the musical influence on the band, um, for me, I've, I've been listening a little bit to the Lazies and felt some ACDC, a little bit of Jet, even yeah. a little bit of like the, the Kaiser Chiefs in there Oh, as yeah, well. cool, yeah. Has there been a specific influence for you guys as a collective band? As a collective, I think Aussie rock for sure, just as a genre, uh, is a big one. We all, like our singer's a big Silverchair fan. Um, I'm obviously a huge ACDC fan. Uh, the other boys are like into, you know, Rose Tattoo and the Angels and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that would be our, our collective influence. And then we all sort of bring our own things to the table, like both our guitarists are huge Beatles fans. So they have that kind of traditional like rock and roll influence as well. And then our singer's more, he loves Coldplay, stuff like that. Uh, so he often brings like a, a more like melodic approach, I guess, to his vocals. Like he still has that like Jimmy Barnes kind of screaming growl thing, but he can also, you know, make a melody out of it and not just like scream his lungs out. Uh, and then I'm, yeah, I have more of a metal background as well. So sometimes that comes into play, but because of my love of ACDC as well, man, like I just, when I, when I first heard this band before the audition, I was like, that's it. I just got to channel those guys. I just got to channel ACDC and that's the gig. <laughs> you guys, as the lazies have been right at the top of the rock and roll charts in, in Canada, you know, alongside the Foo Fighters, Three Day Grace, etc. Have there been times where you've thought, you know what, we've made it, like we're, we're up there with the best? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's been pretty surreal. Like when that single Nothing But Trouble came out, we saw it on the charts at number two underneath the Foo Fighters and, uh, you know, ahead of um, like Three Days Grace and stuff like that. It was pretty surreal. We were kind of like, oh, jeez, <laughs> this, is, this is insane. Um, but yeah, the having made it thing... There is, you know, we are still at the end of the day, like cramming into a small van and we're all sharing hotel beds and stuff like that. And we're all like trying to eat on a budget of $10 a day. And, um, so that kind of brings you back down to earth, you know, but it's fun, man. And the opportunity, that single, that whole album, um, gave us the opportunity to start going to Europe and start touring there. And some of the festivals that we've done in Germany and stuff, there have, have been moments when we've walked into like our dressing room and there's all the beers and everything we could ever want. We've gone, this is pretty sick. Like we're doing all right, you know? And, uh, and then we get home and we're broke and you know, <laughs> so it all just comes crashing down. But it's worth it, right? Totally, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. A question around, I guess, like Spotify and other platforms that are out there. Do you feel as a band that, that it helps or hinders you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the internet has been our, for, for a lot of musicians, I think it's been like our best friend and worst enemy because back in the early 2000s, like when Napster and stuff started coming out, that killed uh, CD sales, you know, uh, especially now, man, I don't, I still don't know why JB Hi-Fi sells CDs, but they just, someone must be buying them, I guess, but it's not me. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those necessary evils, like I think a lot of musicians as streaming especially started to become more and more popular, people were sort of trying to um, boycott it a little bit and trying to stay away from it because we saw the harm that it was doing to um, to the royalties and stuff that we used to get. Um, but 
it's just a necessary evil now, man. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. It's not going away. And as a consumer, it is a lot more convenient to have the, all the music in the world in your pocket, you know. So, yeah, you just kind of have to go with it and, and adapt. Um, so it has been good in the sense that, like, you know, we, we're able to get our music uh, out into the world, you know, so at the touch of a button. At the same time, it means that you're now competing with every band in the world doing the same thing. So it has, yeah, kind of been good and bad. It's it's great because everyone can access our music, but it's bad because no one pays for it now. So we all struggle. Because what I was going to ask. Is there a trade-off that you guys are trading off your profits potentially for the benefit of mass coverage? Yeah, there's, it, it's funny how the industry has changed now. So like albums and music, you know, recorded music in general, like is now more of a sort of promotional tool almost because all the money for bands now is in touring and merchandise. So you kind of use the album and the singles and stuff like that uh, as a promo tool to say, hey, this is what we do and this is what our gigs sound like. You should come, (laughs) you know, and then so hopefully the people that listen on Spotify or whatever go oh that's cool like are they playing in my area and then they'll come to the next show and they'll buy t-shirts and whatever so yeah whereas albums used to generate a lot of income for bands it's now just more of a promotional tool and you talk about like that promotional tool getting them from listening to a gig Mm. was it deliberate for you guys like your youtube channel's got some really good high energy videos was it deliberate to be like this is what we're like on video and this is what we're like live for sure because we're trying to um yeah, because we're trying to expand internationally. Um, yeah, we wanted to be able to give people an insight into visually what the band would look like because there's nothing worse than having an expectation of a band and then going and they're all just staring at their shoes or something, you know, on stage. So, yeah, we definitely wanted to convey um, the high energy performance that we have on stage through our videos to, to yeah, give people an idea of what they were in for, for sure. And do you recall, I guess, more on a personal level? I know you, you, you said you, haven't, you guys haven't necessarily made it in inverted commas, yeah. but have you had that sense of, shit, this is actually taking off? Hang on, there's some momentum behind this band? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's what's kept us all in it because none of us are getting any younger. <laughs> and, uh, man, there's times on the, in the bus when we're all going, fuck this, like, you know, why, why do we bother? Like, what are we doing here? And, um, but... Yeah, seeing seeing the band grow in Canada, especially over the last four years or whatever, seeing the band um, grow, you know, doing more festivals, getting more people to gigs, um, the the songs on the charts and stuff like that, and then that taking us over to Europe, and now we're starting to play a lot of gigs in Germany and uh, France and Spain and Austria and stuff like that. Um, that has definitely kept the fire burning because. I think if, if we just, you know, plateaued and like stayed doing the same club gigs in Canada and the same thing, like it would have been cool for a few years, but eventually we'd get over it and we'd all probably look at each other and go, you know what, like we're not getting any younger, let's just call it a day and we've had fun, so I'll see you later. But yeah, now, uh, yeah, it's, we're definitely chasing something and we're on the verge of something, whether it's good or bad, we don't know, but we all want to be there to find. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. What's that like for you? You know, you look across, you see your band members, but then you're also looking out to the crowd. Yeah, it is pretty surreal. It's pretty cool at times. Um, I think I definitely have like, I say I have the best seat in the house, but the singer probably says the same thing, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I love it. I, I love being able to, to see, uh, everyone's 
like my bandmates energy on the stage and seeing them really get into it and, and bounce off the crowd. And I also love being able to see the whole crowd getting into it, you know? Um, so yeah, there was a moment at, uh, Wacken, this festival Wacken in Germany that we did and we played in front of about, I think it was around like 8,000 people or something, which was, this is our first time at this festival and all these people just showed up and we're like getting right into it. And there was a moment then I remember when I was playing, just looking at the crowd, just thinking to myself, like, where am I right now? You know, how did I get here? But yeah, it's pretty, it's very infectious. Is that a throwback to your childhood dreams, do you think? Like sitting out there just seeing you know, 8,000 people, that's a huge turnout. Yeah. Is that kind of what you dreamt about as a kid? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Without the, the limos and the five-star hotels, you know? That's overrated, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, man, that, that was definitely something I, I always wanted, so that was cool. And if you felt pressure to take on, the, like I said, drummer's persona, you look at a lot of famous drummers, Tommy Lee, Keith Moon, you mentioned, yeah. Dave Grohl, like yeah. they're loose, they're high energy, yeah. you know, there's a bit of quirkiness to them. Have you felt the pressure to take on a persona or do you feel like you fit that persona? I definitely don't fit it. No, <laughs> I'm, a bit of a, I'm a bit of an imposter, I think, when it comes to like the rock star persona. Um, nah, man, I, especially in this band, like we have some strong personalities in the lazy, so I... I don't see the need to compete with that. And I don't really want to either. Like I'm comfortable um, being the drummer up the back there. It's funny that often I get, we go to the merch stand, you know, to sign CDs and stuff like that. And uh, there's been a few times when people have just like completely overlooked me, got all the guitarists and stuff to sign the CD and then looked straight at me and walked away because they don't even recognize me as like a band member. And, uh, and I'm cool with that, man. Like I... These days, I'm definitely more of like, do the gig, pack up and go straight to the hotel. Like, just something about being hungover all the time that just doesn't appeal to me anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think I'm a bit boring when it comes to that. You mentioned actually on social media the other day, you, you flashed back to a 22-hour trip you took to Halifax for a gig and then the next morning, 22 hours back, yeah. back home. Is it a grind for you guys or do you love it? Like, are those kind of trips part of the journey that you guys are enjoying? Yeah, definitely part of the journey, um, especially when we're doing it in a different country. I think if we were here, you know, and drove to Adelaide and back or something for one show, we'd probably hate it. <laughs> but that one, that Halifax one especially, was at the Keith's Brewery, um, which we, on our rider, whenever we travel, we always have this... Keith's brand of uh, beer on our rider so to be invited to like play at the brewery it's kind of like we were like oh sick you know? <laughs> like felt like a bit of a dream come true um so and that gig thankfully that that was a really good gig as well so the 22 hours as like grueling as it was was all worth it when we played that show and uh and had so much fun doing it um but even when we've done it and ended up at like pretty ordinary shows it's uh it's still been worth it because we're still, we're all still very passionate about the band and we all are on the same level of building it and doing whatever it takes to get to the next step and whatever. So if that means driving 22 hours to play to five people, like that's just all part of the process. So yeah. It's a, it's a pretty good perspective I think to have because I think a lot of people would only want to take on the big ones. So yeah. you guys obviously have an appreciation that the small gigs and the one percenters are all going to add up at the end of the day, right? Yeah, and you got to do those shitty shows to get to the better ones. You know, like the amount of crap, empty gigs that I think we've all done in various bands. You know, um, all become irrelevant when you go and play the festival in Germany or when you play like a festival in Canada or something. It's all definitely worth it. You touched on the the festival in Germany. Has there been any others that you kind of? refer to as kind of your best gig ever, both in terms of location, but also performance of the band? Oh, um, there was a good one we did kind of recently. It was a Halloween show in Edmonton in Canada with uh, supporting Sum 41. Um, that was pretty cool. And that was the last gig of a tour. So we'd, um, we were feeling pretty hot, you know, like going on stage and uh, I think start to finish, we nailed that show. So that was definitely one that stands out. 
uh, yeah, that Wacken festival that we played was was pretty awesome. Um, trying to think of some others. Yeah, there's been a few. Yeah, I. Those are probably the two that come to mind. At the moment, uh, yeah, it's always good to play like a big show at the end of a tour because, yeah, like I said, you've just been playing for two months straight or something. The songs come out, you know, like second nature. So, um, yeah, they're always like pretty good shows because you're so warmed up already. Yeah, And throughout the process and the journey, Andy, have you felt like you have been living in a bit of a bubble? You kind of come back home and everything's just normal and then you go back and you're in this bubble again? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's weird. It's funny how when you're on tour, all you, all you really think about, cause there's so much downtime, you know? So when you're in the van, all you're thinking about is, oh, I wish I was at home. Like I wish I was comfortable and like could hang out with my friends and stuff like that. And then it's funny, like when you finish the tour and get home and you're hanging out with your friends, there's that part of you that's like, man, I wish I was on tour again, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I wish I was on stage. So, um, yeah, have definitely felt like I've been in a bit of a bubble. Um, but been fortunate to be able to every four or five months, like go on tour and, and do it all again. So, but now obviously with everything going on, who knows when the next one will be. But. Yeah, definitely. And then if you felt, I know you guys touched on that as a band, you guys know that at some point it might be either time to kick on and go more so or even to call it a day. Mm. Have you felt pressures, you know, from back home or ex- expectations from friends and family to kind of call it a day and, and get that nine to five? Yeah. M- most of it comes from me. Like, I put the pressure on myself. Um, like I said before, I'm, I'm super lucky to have supportive family and friends. And uh, so they're always very encouraging of, of touring and stuff like that. But I look at my friends that are like, get, everyone's getting married now and everyone's having kids and people have got nice cars and they're all buying houses and like really setting themselves up, you know, as adults, which is like a concept that's so foreign to me right now. I'm still like, you know, in and out of share houses and I don't own a car and like, I'm, you know, it's just, it is what it is. But, um, it's funny that I, I put that pressure on myself and I'm always like, oh, I wish I could do that or I should have done that or blah, blah, blah. But then when I talk to those friends that are doing everything that I kind of envy, they, they're like, oh man, who cares about that? Like you buy a house at some point, like a lot of them are kind of envious of what I've been doing. And that's kind of a reality check that I sort of need from time to time. Cause otherwise I just get depressed that I've got nothing. <laughs> and Andy, do you believe that in life that you find yourself or that you create yourself in terms of, do you feel that there's like a path laid out for you or that every decision you make is creating your path? Oh, wow. Um, Jeez. I don't know. I've been so fortunate that this journey started at a young age when uh, a lot of us were thinking, you know, what am I going to do? Like we just finished school and it was like, what am I going to do? And I've just been lucky that since that first Australia tour, things have just kind of fallen into place for me, like coming back, getting into new bands, going to new places and blah, blah, blah. So I guess those, the decision for me to keep going with music in general and touring with bands and stuff and pursuing that, I guess has made me, uh, like I've created the path for myself, I suppose, you know, by making that decision but at the same time, a lot of things have just sort of happened that, yeah, have have changed me or made me realise that, uh, you know, something different about life or whatever. So it's a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, you you got to, you got to, yeah, make the decision to pursue something like music in order to have those like sort of experiences that you appreciate later. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> yeah, 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 it does, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And, and have you taken the time to reflect on what's been obviously a very amazing five years, kind of with the laziest, but even 10 years since you first started touring? Have you deliberately stopped and paused and looked back? No, not really. Because, no, I'm, I'm always trying to think of what's next, you know, and how to 
how to take the next step or how to 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 grow more as a band. So yeah, I appreciate like when I do look back and reflect on what I've done, I I definitely appreciate it and you know, like I'm saying before, I appreciate those shitty gigs that we did to get to the good ones that we're doing now. Um but at the same time it's important in this industry especially to focus on what's coming and how to how to make yourself grow like you can't just get complacent and think that oh you know we've made it this is it we don't have to do anything else because that's when people just start to lose interest in your band and don't give a shit yeah <laughs> so I, I yeah I'm always trying to just put the past in the past and uh focus on the future yeah and whilst we, we are in a world of kind of unknown at the moment, mm. what does what the next 12 months have an offer for yourself and the lazies? Oh, man. We don't know. Yeah, we honestly don't know. Uh, we're, we can't see gigs coming back, at least not this year. Maybe in 2021, we've started getting some bookings for 2021, um, mostly gigs that got cancelled this year. So this year was going to be a writing year for us anyway. So I think... Now we're trying to decide, like, if we record the album this year, uh, with half of us in Canada and half in Australia, it's like how to record that album if we decide to do it, uh, and then, it, you know, when to release it, because uh, there's not really any point releasing an album if you can't tour it. So, uh, yeah, we're, so that's sort of the first step for us. Um, 2020 is a complete write-off as far as gigs are concerned. Our biggest fear is that, like, we're going to start getting gigs next year, but me and Liam, who are still in Sydney, uh, won't be able to fly anywhere for them, uh, which is going to be a hurdle. Like, we just have to cross that bridge when we come to it. For me personally, I think I'm just taking this time now that I'm, like, back at home with a drum kit set up that I can play on. I'm trying to work on my own... um, like fitness and I've over the years I've developed a few injuries and stuff like that, like RSI and whatever. So, um, I'm just sort of trying to maintain that with, with practice and, uh, and just trying to get better at drumming, I suppose. Um, and yeah, just try and get a job and just try and stay sane and, you know, like just get through it like everyone else, man. I think a lot of people are in the same boat and it's hard to remember sometimes that you're not alone because it just feels like, so depressing sometimes, but you got to remind yourself, like, it's a pretty unique situation and you're not the only one. So just get through it. Yeah. And do you have any advice for you know, young musicians or, or anyone really who's looking to forge a career in something they're passionate about? Any tips or tricks about, you know, just getting moving and, and getting the journey started? Yeah. I think it's, um, you got to love it. Like all these answers are going to sound so cliche, you know, but you really have to be passionate about it and, uh, yeah, you really have to love it. Otherwise it's, it's just going to feel like a chore and you're going to end up resenting it. Um, but always, yeah, always like set goals for yourself as well and, uh, always pursue it and, um, just never, never say no to an opportunity. You know, like if, if something comes up that, that might, uh, not seem like a big deal at the time, you know, it could help you develop skills for something later that is a big deal or, uh, you know, like we were saying before, all those small gigs, the amount of gigs that we've been booked for before in various bands, we just go, fuck, really? Like, are we really going to that place and doing that gig? Those gigs and that, um, persistence and that like determination, I guess, just to play the show and to, to keep, um, making progress is what's, is what helps you, you know, do the bigger shows and get to the, the bigger audiences and stuff like that. So yeah, you just, I don't know, be persistent. And if you don't love it, don't do it because you're just going to want to kill yourself. You know? Yeah. And how do people find out more um, about, about yourself and the work that the Lazy's doing? What's the best way to check out all the great work? Uh, the Lazy's, we have a website, thelazysband.com. Um, and all our, you know, Facebook and Instagram accounts, which is the Lazy's Band. Uh, yeah, for me, same thing, social media, um, Instagram and Facebook mostly. Uh, yeah, we've got our YouTube channel as well. 
pretty much if you just Google the lazies, will come up. So that, yeah, yeah, that's probably the best way to do it. <laughs> Andy, big, big thanks uh, for being involved in the Passion and Perspective podcast, mate. Wishing you all the best. Awesome. Cheers, Dono. Thanks, man. You. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by the Western Weekender.